Uh, I think it might be useful just to recall some of what we've... Um, Ah, I'm sorry, I didn't nod, did I? All right, let's start again. (laughs) You'll chop that first bit off. Okay, good. So, good morning. (laughs) Um, This morning I'm going to be talking about the hindrances through the metaphor of Mara, the demonic, the devil. But before doing that, it might be helpful to uh, just recap where we're kind, where we started from, and where we're going. We started by looking at how meditation begins and ends in what I call the everyday sublime. And although this might be a rather curious expression, it suggests very much to me that meditation, awareness, mindfulness is always embedded in a totality of experience, which is somehow um, excessive. It it, it slips beyond our capacity to really grasp it in any kind of final way. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment, which I guess is influencing some of what I'm saying, called um, The Master and His Emissary by... um, a neuroscientist and psychiatrist called Ian McGilchrist. And it's a rather long but quite readable study of the two hemispheres of the brain. And one of the distinctions, and again this is probably simplistic, is that the the left hemisphere uh, tends to be concerned with division. In other words, breaking reality up into recognizable bits. Whereas the right hemisphere tends to be about wholeness and cohesion and totality. And I think you can see this tension um, within the ways in which mindfulness and meditation are presented in the Buddhist tradition. There are a lot of practices that tend to be quite you know, divisive in a way. In other words, t- picking out a particular element of experience like the sensation of the breath at the nostrils um, or whatever it might be. Um, And other meditations which are about being totally open to whatever is going on at a given moment. And in a strange way, this kind of reflects the tension between the, the two hemispheres. My sense is that as the Buddhist tradition became more uh, scholarly, more uh, focused on the questions of the Abhidharma and and so on, it tended to become more about categorizing and classifying and trying to define everything very clearly. Whereas at the beginning, I sense, and also each time there's a kind of eruption or revolution in Buddhist thought, there seems to be a return to the totality, the total experience. And that total experience um, is, of course, what's actually happening now. We can, um, of course, and it's sometimes quite necessary, to single out the breath in order to stabilize attention. But the purpose of that is that we can more and more ground our experience um, in a kind of stability, uh, a kind of clarity 
that allows us to come to terms with the total experience that we're having. When we look at the the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the grounding of mindfulness, it's interesting that we see a very similar development. It starts by paying attention to a short breath or a long breath. In other words, a very specific detail of the whole. And then it moves on to the body, as we saw yesterday, the various uh, constituents, the various dimensions of embodiment. And then it turned inwards and paid attention to feelings and states of mind. And then we get to the fourth grounding of mindfulness, um, which is often not much attended to. But I think what's going on in the fourth uh, foundation of mindfulness is a return to the totality, a return to the whole experience that's now been somewhat established through, uh, or attention to which has been now established through concentrating on the breathing and the body and the mental states. And then we get to the, we come back, or we have the, as it were, the tools, the skills uh, to bring the practice of mindfulness into the context of our total experience. Again, I've started using words um, like grounding of mindfulness. The, maybe we should say a bit about this. Sati Patana is the, is the Pali term. Sati means mindfulness or recollection. Patana usually is translated as foundation. But in fact, um, the Pali here is a little ambiguous. In the Sanskrit and in the Tibetan versions of this term, um, it's clearly not a noun. It means something like um, applying attention. Um, Alan Wallace translates it as the applications of mindfulness, which I think is quite good, because it it shows that it's about doing something, applying attention. And we apply attention to our body, to our feelings, to our mental states, and to the totality of what's going on. But also the word patana uh, carries within it the notion of tanna, which means ground or base. And that's where we get the idea of foundation of mindfulness. But we can't use the word foundation as a verb in English. To found something means something rather different. If we stay with the notion of ground, though, we can think of the practice of mindfulness as the grounding of attention. The grounding of attention in our bodies, in our feelings, in our mental states, and then the grounding of attention in the totality of what's taking place. And I don't think it's accidental that in a famous passage in uh, Majjama 26, where the Buddha describes his own process of becoming the Buddha, um, he speaks of it in terms of a shift from attachment to a particular place 
delighting and reveling in a place, to seeing one's ground, tanna, tanang. And his awakening, therefore, is not described in terms of coming to some deep kind of vision or insight into some great truth. That language is not found in such a passage. But rather it's about a kind of existential shift. A shift from preoccupation with things that appear to give us security in life, like our identity, our social position, um, you know, our you know, beliefs, our opinions and so on, to a way of being in the world that is grounded in the actual uh, flowing forth of life itself. Because the Buddha describes this tannang as paticca samuppada, as contingent or conditional arising. So again, we keep hitting on these same topics and themes. So it's not accidental, therefore, I feel, that when he starts to speak of the practice of attention, it has to do with this grounding of our experience in the actual rising and passing of whatever is going on here and now. And that, I think, provides us with the framework in which to understand the practice of mindfulness. We're a, the mindfulness is a process of grounding ourselves. So let's look at an, another passage. Uh, this is from the Anguttara Nikaya 5.14, where Mr. Gautama asks, what is the power of mindfulness? And he answers himself, he says, Here a disciple is mindful. He is equipped with the keenest mindfulness and awareness. He recollects well and keeps in mind what has been said and done in the past. Now this often strikes us as odd. Because surely we think mindfulness is about being here and now. What has it got to do with anything in the past? Surely that's what we're trying to get away from, isn't it? And I think this is um, the fact that we're rather surprised by that, I think reveals something about the ways in which mindfulness has been presented to us, particularly through uh, the Vipassana teachings and practices and now the whole mindfulness-based stress reduction and so on and so forth, where mindfulness is thought very much as being a kind of you know, non-judgmental awareness rooted in the present. I don't think that's a mistake, but I think it's only seeing a part of the picture. That in many ways, um, mindfulness is actually about recollection, which I've already said, I think, is, in, is indeed what the word means. If you go to Delhi, you can go to a place close to Birla House where Gandhi was assassinated. And it's called the Gandhi Shmurti. Now, Shmurti is Sanskrit for Sati. 
and it means the, the Gandhi Memorial. In other words, it's where you remember and recollect Gandhi and everything that Gandhi stood for, obviously. And there's something about mindfulness that is likewise uh, very much to do with recollection. Um, let's just give an example. You're, you're mindful of your breathing. You're aware of the fact that you're breathing. And um, then the mind wanders off. So what do you do? You rem- once you notice that, you remember to come back to the breath. You recollect, not so much the breath, but you recollect the instruction to do something. We often don't notice when we're meditating that we're actually follow- following a set of internalized instructions. And when we get distracted or someone interrupts us, we then have to, oh right, yeah, the breath. So a large part of sati, of mindfulness slash recollection, is recalling what it is that you've committed yourself to do. It's remembering something. And in fact, the, the, the texts do make a distinction between sati, recollection, and sampajanya, a much less known term, which we would translate perhaps as full awareness or awareness. You recollect what it is that you're meant to be doing and then you apply and cultivate awareness of the breath. So in a sense, there's two things going on. Now we can extend this, I think, even wider. And in fact, in, um, in later Buddhist tradition, this is what happens. It's not dissimilar for, from the largely unconscious awareness or recollection I have of, say, being a married man. And so that when I find my thoughts straying to something that's incompatible with being a married man, then I recollect or I am mindful, as we would say in English, of the fact that I'm married. Or if one is a monk or a nun, it's the same. In other words, um, mindfulness is to be mindful of a certain commitment to a value that you honour. It's more than just a sort of blank paying of attention to things in a non-judgmental way. It It requires recalling something, not necessarily consciously and all the time, but in a way that there's always some larger sphere of of values and purposes and goals implicit in your awareness of the breath. Why am I attending to the breath? Well, we probably can, we have our own internal justifications because this will lead me further along the Eightfold Path or whatever it might be. Will this make me more calm? This will help me deal better with my tendency to get depressed there's always a reason that is, in a sense, implicit to the act of paying attention. And I think it's important to, to, to recognize this. We find actually in... Um, I was looking this up recently. The, um, many, many years ago, I translated a, 
a very famous Mahayana Sanskrit text called the Bodhichari Avatara, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. I translated it from the Tibetan, and I used a Tibetan commentary by a man called Tommy Zangbo, a 13th century Kadampa monk. And I looked this up just before coming on this retreat, um, how he defines my mindfulness and awareness. Uh, for him, this is literally what he says, he says, mindfulness is the recollection of all one has undertaken to let go of and accomplish. The recollection, drenba. In Tibetan, mindfulness is drenba, and drenba in ordinary Tibetan means to remember. It doesn't suggest at all paying attention here and now. So the recollection of everything one has undertaken to let go of and accomplish. So being recalling that implicitly or explicitly is to be mindful. And awareness for Tommy Zangbo and for Shantideva is being skilled in the activities of letting go and accomplishing. So in other words, it's a much broader uh, context uh, in which this practice of mindfulness takes place. The expressions, what one has undertaken to let go of and accomplish, is shorthand for the task of the Four Noble Truths. This is the way it's, it's described, it's, it's the way the Tibetan texts describe this. What we undertake to let go of is suffering and craving. And what we undertake to accomplish is stopping or nibbana and the path, the Eightfold Path. So, in other words, this fits very neatly, actually, with the structure of the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse where the Buddha describes the stages of, or the foundations or the groundings of attention that culminates in, in the, the very end of the text with being mindful of the four noble tasks, truths. We'll come back to that later. So in other words, we, we see not only in Tomizangbo, but we find that this is confirmed in the very earliest source we have on mindfulness, that it's all leading us towards mindfulness of the four, of fully knowing dukkha, of letting go of grasping, of experiencing moments where that grasping stops, and then creating and cultivating a way of life, the Eightfold Path. So mindfulness starts with when I breathe out a long breath, I know I'm breathing out a long breath, and it culminates in the internalization of this primary um, uh, model of value. Letting go of craving, cultivating a path. And awareness is, the, is, the, is cultivating the, the skills in which we're able to actually do that. It's all very well to recollect these things, but that in itself won't make much difference. The challenge is to recollect and then to act upon. 
So the whole thing becomes a lot more complicated, I'm afraid. But what it does do, and I think this is the, the, the point I'm trying to make, is that um, uh, the practice of mindfulness uh, leads us to another relationship with the totality of our experience. That seems to be quite explicit. And yet we rarely hear on retreats about, say, mindfulness of the four truths or mindfulness of the five aggregates. So let's just go over this again. And I know for some of you, you may not be familiar with the Buddhist jargon. And actually, someone asked me this on a note. Um, all of these things that I'm reading off my iPad um, can, will be sent, if you wish, at the end of the retreat to all of you. So you have all of this data. Uh, you don't have to worry about scribbling it all down. So the four foundations of mindfulness or the four groundings of mindfulness or the four applications of mindfulness have to do with the body, the feelings, the mind. That seems relatively straightforward. And then it has to do with what are called the dhammas. Now, I would translate this as mindfulness of ideas. Ideas. I think dhamma here means idea, roughly. Now, what is distinctive about this fourth practice or application of mindfulness is that rather than having single things on which one attends, the pleasant feeling or the in-breath or the out-breath, you have clusters of ideas. So the fourth practice of mindfulness has to do with, I'll just list them off, the five hindrances, the five aggregates, as they're called, which is body, or sorry, form, feeling, perception, inclination, consciousness. The six senses, the seven factors of enlightenment or factors of awakening, and finally, the Four Noble Truths. They are the objects, as it were, of the fourth application of mindfulness. Now, I think we have to recognize that we're not being asked to pay attention to these ideas as though in the same way that we would pay attention to a feeling or a breath. I think we need to understand mindfulness here as meaning far more recollection. In other words, the fourth mindfulness is really recollecting either implicitly or explicitly the context within which our practice is taking place. And the five and these all these lists of, of terms are as it were um, I would say framing devices. They give us a frame within which our practice of awareness um, is taking place. Useful reminders, we might say. And each framing device, the five aggregates, the six this and so on, offers us a kind of pragmatic summary of, first of all, what inhibits mindfulness, which are the hindrances. So in other words, we must be mindful of what impedes or blocks or prevents us from being mindful. 
Very important. That's what we're going to come back to. Oh, God, I've already spoken for half an hour. Um, the next ones, the aggregates and the senses, have to do with the, uh, the range and extent of mindfulness. In other words, uh, the way reality is somehow parsed through the different senses, through the different categories of body and feeling and so forth, to hold that totality in mind to be aware that one's practice does not exclude anything from the field of awareness. The seven factors of awakening describe uh, the contemplative evolution of mindfulness. They describe how it starts with mindfulness, then it moves on to the investigation of dhammas, of things, of experience, which leads to a certain experience of delight and joy and stillness and concentration and equanimity, which is clearly a process. So in other words, we need also to be mindful of the process of transformation that mindfulness affords and allows. And then the final one is, of course, the Four Noble Truths or the Four Noble Tasks, which, as I understand it, is what provides mindfulness with its raison d'etre. In other words, that's the sort of ethical framework within which mindfulness makes sense. It offers us an answer to, well, why should I bother being mindful? We'll come back to that. That'll constitute... um, at least one, if not two, of these sessions towards the end of the week. But first let's have a look at um, the hindrances. Now I'm going to just list off the hindrances. I'm sure most of you are aware of them. Attachment, or sometimes it's translated as sensual desire, but anything in that broad area. Aversion or hatred is the second. Restlessness lethargy, and um, doubt. But I'm actually not going to say much about those. I I find in some ways that's just kind of shorthand in a somewhat, I find, rather schematic way to isolate things that clearly often throw us off course. And again, we don't need to have a lot explained here. I suspect just by doing meditation, you're all probably all too familiar with the fact that sometimes I'm watching my breath and then some desire or fantasy, um, some longing pops up and off I go. Or I get caught up in some aversion or grudge or someone said this nasty thing to me and I'm going to make sure that when I get back home, etc. Or restlessness, what's new, lethargy, ditto, and doubt. Why the hell am I doing this? I'm sure I can find something more interesting to spend a week doing. And so on. I feel, though, in that way, we're still speaking rather reductively. And Buddhism does have this tendency uh, to try to single out particular problems or particular virtues and then find strategies to you know, work with them. But there's another kind of language that we find in the suttas 
that's not has nothing to do with that sort of thinking at all. And a lot of this is framed in what we would nowadays call mythological or or symbolic discourse. And perhaps the best example of this are all of the texts around Mara. Um, this, there is a whole cluster of about 30 suttas um, in the fourth chapter of the Sangyuta Nikaya, which are all about interactions between Mr. Gautama and the devil. I'm going to read one of them out. Mr. Gautama was once teaching his followers about nirvana. Then it occurred to Mara, ah, the wanderer Gautama is holding forth again. Let me approach him in order to confound them. So Mara assumed the form of a farmer, wearing a lar- carrying a large plough on his shoulder, holding a long goad stick, his hair dishevelled, wearing hempen garments, his feet smeared with mud. He came up to Mr. Gautama and said, Have you by any chance seen my oxen? And the Buddha replies, But what are oxen to you, Mara? The eye is mine, E-Y-E. The eye is mine, retorted Mara, and forms are mine, as are the ears and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and tactile sensations, the mind and ideas, as well as the consciousness that emerges from these things being in touch. Everything is mine. Where can you go to escape me? (laughs) Now, um, this kind of language, as you can hear very clearly, uh, is not about the five this and the four that and the sequence of stages and so on. It's a whole different discourse. And... Um, it, it fits my criteria for being something distinctive and original to the Buddhist teaching because strangely given the numerous gods and goddesses and other figures you find in the Hindu pantheon you don't find Mara Mara is an exclusively Buddhist figure there's no equivalent uh, in, 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 in the Hindu canon. You've got loads of you know, Krishna and Vishnu and Makali and Shiva and all these people, but you don't have Mara. So again, it's something that you cannot derive from the context, the cultural religious context of India at that time. It wasn't an idea that was current. Where did it come from? I think it's possible it was an idea borrowed from Persia from Zoroastrianism, where you find something very similar, the figure of Ahriman. It's also striking of how similar is the figure of Mara to the Judeo-Christian figure of Satan. And modern Jewish scholarship now more or less accepts that the figure of Satan came from the period of the Babylonian exile. In other words, was drawn from the Zoroastrian culture. So possibly both Buddhism and Christianity 
developed their idea of the demonic from the influence of Persia. It's speculative. But again, I find that kind of interesting. So in any case, Mara here is a way, a symbolic way of talking about the pervasiveness of the hindrances. It's worth pointing out perhaps that the word Mara uh, comes from the Sanskrit murtyu, which means death. And Mara is a form that means something like the one who takes life, the one who kills. So, how are we to understand this? First of all, um, I would suggest that Mara, the one who kills, is whatever occurs in our experience that stops or blocks or prevents the realization of the four tasks. And in fact, we could say that um, Mara is, is the opposite of fully knowing Dukkha. It's about ignoring Dukkha. Mara is the opposite of letting go of grasping. It is actually grasping itself. Mara is the opposite of experiencing cessation. Mara is a kind of frenzied, frenetic, ongoing busyness where we simply can't ever seem to really stop. And rather than creating a way of life, a path... Mara is the process of going round in circles and not getting anywhere. So Mara has to be understood here, I think, as, as what inhibits us from flourishing as human beings, what holds us back from what we could emerge or evolve as uh, human cre- creatures. Now, the story of the farmer um, suggests that, um, well, it suggests a couple of things. It suggests, first of all, that Mara has to do with deception, and also Mara has to do with interruption. And if you look at the, at the story, um, so Mara assumed the form of a farmer. Okay, that, in other words, deliberately chooses to trick the Buddha and the monks who are listening to the talk. And he appears in the guise of something entirely innocuous, a scruffy old farmer. And that can easily put us off guard and allows, as it were, that figure uh, to come into the situation where the Buddha's teaching and basically interrupt it by saying, have you by any chance seen my oxen? So we have an image here of something appearing to us that is not actually what it is. It's, it's appearing in a way that it isn't in fact in reality. 
And at the same time, it cuts the thread of what we're doing. It breaks in. Now, I think we can find probably many examples, both in our, our, our daily lives, uh, as well as in our, um, our practice of meditation, where um, we're constantly assailed, as it were, by things coming up, as we say, um, phones ringing, um, people asking us for something, um, or else we're interrupted by the frailty and the mortality of our bodies. We get ill, we get aches and pains, we get old, we get weak, our mind loses its sharpness, its recall. We have a constant need for food and warmth and shelter and sex and things like this, all of which are, of course, not problematic in themselves, but they very often interfere or interrupt, let's say, a process of reflection, uh, a deepening of uh, awareness and stillness. Suddenly we're thrown off track. And we see this very clearly in meditation because we're sitting here you know, happily watching our breath or aware of the sounds outside and trying, getting more and more still and focused and then suddenly something breaks in and we're off. Something quite innocuous, just some thought that comes up in the mind or some sound we hear outside or some memory, which in itself is not a problem. But it has the capacity to snatch our attention away and we lose awareness. And often it takes several minutes or longer before we suddenly sort of come to, oh, right, Gaia House, that's right, I'm at Gaia House, that's a retreat. And we then get back to the, the practice. But the problem is, very often after such an interruption, we, are, we, we, we feel as though we've somehow lost something, a continuity perhaps, or a particular sense of, of calm and attention. It's gone, or at least it's been very compromised. We might feel the body, the heart, beating a bit faster. Now, all of this is Mara. Now, we must be careful, though, not to think of Mara as somehow intrinsically evil. Um, Mara is only problematic if it interrupts a specific a task or goal that we've set ourselves. We have to understand it in that context. In the context of practicing meditation or trying to realize the Four Noble Truths, then a lot of stuff tends to get in the way, tends to impede or hinder that process. And of course, the classical hindrances give us some sense of that attraction, aversion, etc. But it seems to me that um, Mara, in a way, saturates experience uh, in a much more um, pervasive way than we tend to think. Now, as, as the Buddhist tradition developed and uh, monks began to sort of try to define Mara, which is arguably not you know, maybe it's going off in an unhelpful direction in some ways. But they came up with 
a model of four kinds of Mara. The, the Kilesa Mara, in other words, the Mara of our... Klesha means something like defilements or afflictions. And again, it's shorthand for attraction, aversion, rest, restlessness, etc., and that's often how it tends to be understood nowadays. Mara is a kind of psychological metaphor uh, for certain negative states of mind. But in the classical Buddhist understanding, that's only a quarter of Mara. You then have what's called Kanda Mara, the Mara of the aggregates, the Mara of the of, of form, feeling, perception, inclination, consciousness, which constitutes the whole of experience. So in other words, Mara is somehow built into the structure of experience itself. In other words, there's something limiting about our embodied experience. And herein lies, I think, the crucial paradox, perhaps. If it's only because we are embodied and we feel and we perceive and we're capable of acting and being conscious, is it possible to pursue the path at all? It would be meaningless uh, if we were not built in such a way. And yet at the same time, it's that very embodiment and feelings and perceptions and, and tendencies that actually tend to act as a drag, a kind of a, a dead weight, on that very experience. So in other words, if we think of Mara and Buddha as a kind of polarity, Mara obviously that which limits, that which hinders, that which blocks, that which holds us back, then Buddha becomes a metaphor for that which opens us up, that which frees us, that which allows us to enter into a creative flow, that which um, uh, enables us to be more attentive, more aware, more kind, more wise. And that too is, of course, just as much constituted out of our embodied conscious life. So Mara and Buddha cannot be separated any more than life and death can be separated. They're part of a single experience. The third kind of Mara, in, in, you don't find this in the canon, by the way, it's, it's later... Um, uh, in Abhidhamma and later philo philosophy, you find these distinctions. The third kind of Mara is called Yama Mara, which means Mara who is the Lord of Death. In other words, death itself, physical death. And, I mean, clearly, death can very much get in the way of what we want to do. <laughs> Nothing stops us quite as as completely in realizing our goals as dropping dead. Uh, seriously. Uh, and I think that's the sense in which Mara is death. Because Mara, you know, is not only a kind of an inner death, which I think is perhaps the more useful way of thinking of it, 
Mara is whatever constricts and blocks us, whatever ties us down, whatever keeps us going round in circles and not getting anywhere. But also, Mara extends to our bodies, the breakdown of the bodies, strokes, heart attacks, whatever it might be, all of that is a, a limiting condition that, that prevents us and hinders us from realizing our goals. Now, of course, of course all to be aware of this, to be aware of, 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 of the, the, the limits or the, the, the obstructions to our life um, is precisely what gives us maybe a sense of urgency, a sense of making the most we possibly can out of our lives while we're able and fit and relatively young and healthy. It plays into all of this. And I would also argue that Mara extends to oppressive social and political structures. Try running this retreat in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> wouldn't happen. Wouldn't get through the door. Wouldn't let you into the country. Which is not a problem for us, maybe. But imagine if you happen to be a Saudi man or woman or an Iranian um, or even, a, you know, even in you know, medieval Christianity, you wouldn't have been allowed to do this either. In other words, there are constraints imposed by the society, the political structures, the religious beliefs and institutions. In other words, the powers of the world. What St. Paul, in one of his letters, calls Satan the principalities and the powers. It's a wonderful expression. Uh, and he also, Paul calls uh, Satan, um, the god of our time, uh, the, the, the theos of our aeon, the theos of our aeon. And you find that in Buddhist mythology too, that Mara is identified with Karma Deva, uh, the god of desire, who is symbolically the god who rules over the world of the senses. But I think the important point is to be careful not to get into a kind of bifurcation and think of Buddha and Mara or good and evil as separate things in a kind of Manichaean sense, but rather to see that every situation that you are in at any moment has the potential for openness and understanding and equally the potential for closing down and in a sense, getting confused and bored and frustrated. And so that goes back to one of the questions yesterday afternoon. There's not, as a human being, we're not intrinsically Buddhas or intrinsically Maras. Both are potentials that can invade us at any time and take over. And it's striking in the story with the farmer that even the Buddha, who is supposedly the one who has overcome Mara. That's the, one of the classic definitions of awakening, is the conquering of Mara. And yet, although Mara has been conquered, he still shows up. He still gets in the way. He still interferes. So maybe we need to look at what Mara says. He says, where are we? You know, I am the eyes and the ear. Here we are. The eye is mine. The forms are mine, the ear and sounds, nose and smells, tongue and tastes. 
body and tactile sensations, the mind and ideas. Everything is mine. Where can you go to escape me? And this is Mr. Gautama's answer. He says, where there, are no, where there is no eye and no forms, no ear and no sounds, no nose and no smells, no tongue and no tastes, no body and no sensations, no mind and no ideas, and no consciousness either. There is no place for you there, Mara. Now, we shouldn't take this literally to mean that, you know, when we're dead, when all of these things are not there anymore, then there's no Mara. Because after all, Mr. Gautama is alive and well when he says this. And this is he's presumably speaking of something that he understands at that moment, that there are no eyes, no ears, no nose, no, which of course is the Heart Sutra, as I'm sure many of you have already picked up. So what this points to is that Mara has something to do with the way in which we divide reality up into discrete independent bits and possibly the bit that we are most concerned with is called me and the root therefore of working with Mara is actually to do with some of the very primary and self-evident perceptions we have of experience itself in other words endlessly differentiated through language through concepts through ideas through self-interest as long as we are not questioning the way in which these things appear to us then Mara somehow has us in, uh, in his hold now, Shana, now, Sariputta, as we saw yesterday, explained that radical attention means to notice how life is dukkha, is fleeting, is not mine, and is empty. The more that we pay attention to experience from, in those terms, the more we undermine the capacity of Mara to trick us and interrupt us. So my own interpretation of that um, story uh, would be to understand that what liberates us from Mara is not to literally destroy Mara, which is impossible, because Mara actually saturates the fabric of life itself, but rather to radically reorient our relationship to experience as a whole. To begin to uh, be less um, convinced by the apparent distinctions between things, the differences between things, which again, going back to McKilchrist. The, the left brain way of looking at the world, and to recover a sense of the whole, of the totality 
of experience, what we might call nowadays an holistic sense of experience, in which we recognize that everything is what it is only because of its relationships to everything else, its context, its environment. To recognize that nothing, uh, including ourselves, exists as a kind of independent, isolate unit. That is Mara's primary hold on us, is this uh, conviction we have that I am a separate, permanent, independent thing of some kind, and so are you, and so is pretty much everything else, and that's what gives a, a seeming legitimacy to spending our lives getting the bits that we want and getting a bit rid of the bits we don't like, which is, um, unfortunately, a mug's game. It doesn't work. It just goes on forever and it goes round and round in circles. And if that, to that extent, we are, as the texts sometimes say, we're, 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 we're caught on Mara's fish hook, his barbed hook, or we're, we're, we, we've got our foot stuck in one of Mara's traps. These are the metaphors that are used. Uh, Mara is like, he says, like a hunter who goes into the forest and puts out traps, and the deer, wandering peacefully through the forest, gets stuck. Or you get snagged by something, and it won't let go. I find this language um, uh, extremely rich, and in some ways more, more fertile and more fruitful than memorizing the list of the five hindrances, which is useful, obviously. But it doesn't really capture this more holistic, this more almost poetic, mythic uh, story of Mara that is really talking about the totality of our experience. Just another couple of quotes before we end. Um, in a very early part of the Pali Canon called the Sutta Nipata, which, uh, if you haven't read it, I would really recommend it. It's a short collection of about 900 verses um, included in, in the, what's called the Kudaka Nikaya, the, the minor text, so-called, uh, which in, also has the Dhammapada and the Udana. The Sutta Nipata is by scholars and by Buddhist tradition regarded as probably the earliest collection of sayings. And there, actually, we find some of the key texts on Mara. Um, this is a verse from there. It makes no difference what you grasp, says the Buddha. When a person grasps, Mara stands beside him. So Mara is, in other words, the, 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 as soon as we tighten and hold on to something, Mara has kind of got hold of us there. In other words, we've, we've put ourselves into a limited uh, situation or perspective or view or thought, and that somehow then cuts us off from our relationship to the totality. We become preoccupied with that particular thing and the more that we get seduced by it or infuriated with it, the more it dominates our attention and we, in a sense, then get alienated from the complexity of the context and the whole. And a few verses later, 
we have another statement where the Buddha says, constantly mindful, view the world as empty. Now, empty here, as in Madhyamaka philosophy, means look at the world as empty of anything having an existence in and of itself, or what you sometimes hear as being inherently existent. Don't get caught up or get seduced by particular details as being good or bad, and then getting locked into them. But always try to step back and see that what is going on, however painful, however joyous, is emerging out of a much richer and wider context, which we might call life. Constantly mindful, view the world as empty. Look look at the world in this way, and the king of death will not see you. Mara will not see you. Uh, You often have this metaphor that... um, in other passages, the Buddha says that if you, if you cultivate mindful attention in, that, in this sense, seeing the relatedness, the complexity, the totality of experience, you blindfold Mara. In other words, that tendency we have to narrow, to restrict, to get obsessed, simply no longer has a place. There is no place for you there, Mara. And finally, we have in the, the very end of the Chakavati Sihanada Sutta, which is in the Diganikaya, Mr. Gautama says, I do not consider any power so hard to conquer as the power of Mara. So in other words... There's an acknowledgement here that um, what holds us back, what hinders our experience, um, is far more than just one or two bothersome mental tendencies. But there seems to be a kind of uh, constrictive, limiting quality built into the structure of experience itself. And that, in its widest sense, is what I feel mindfulness of the hindrances is about. Mindfulness of the hindrances is being mindful of whatever it is that somehow uh, restricts us, holds us back. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.